0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This week on Red Inca, we're going to talk about India, the T20 side, and it'll be me, because I've got a lot to say. There's a huge video series that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, and wanted to try and do it as a podcast as well. I think there are three sides that are coming out of the World Cup that are quite interesting obviously South Africa, but I'm not sure how you do any analysis on South Africa, if we're being honest. Then you've got the story of West Indies, which is far more interesting and you can do more analysis on it. But at the same time, they only played a couple of games and it went completely to hell. And from that, again, I'm not really sure what you could do. India, I feel, is the most interesting because they can fix their problems. They have talent, They have money and they have everything that they need. But their issues seem to run so incredibly deep. And for those of you who are not Indian and not aware of this, one of the biggest things you will hear on Indian cricket Twitter or WhatsApp or Facebook or wherever Indians congregate is that they haven't won a major tournament since 2013. That one they kind of won by accident as well. It was a Champions Trophy against England. England probably outplayed India for a large period of time. Ishan Sharma was all over the place, looking like he was bowling one of the worst overs of his career, and then out of nowhere seemed to bowl one of the best overs of his career, and India got over in that particular game. But it is the last time they won a major tournament, if you count that as a major tournament. I don't. But but at the very least, that was a win at an ICC event, and before that was 2011 at the World Cup. Before that was 2007 at the T20 World Cup. So, It is interesting that they had a lot of success and then since then they have been probably better and more whole as a side, but they haven't had the ability to really bring all that together. If you look at the stats since the middle of 2013 when they won that Champions Trophy, they're by far the team that has the most wins in cricket. They play a lot of games as well, but they win an incredible amount of games and no one else is actually particularly close to them. So then the question becomes how is this team who wins so often stopped winning when it matters? And that's the reason I made the video series, and that's why I'm talking to you as well today, because that's the bit I couldn't really get out of my head. The idea that they lose at major tournaments, and kind of nowhere else along the line do they lose that much. The main two ones are choking, and that's uh, something that you'll certainly see from Indian fans online. There's a lot of talk about how these players are chokers. Even when you look at a team like South Africa, I'm not really sure that that's what happens. I think mostly choking probably comes down to perhaps your team being a bit one-dimensional, perhaps your team getting a bad matchup, perhaps the luck going against you. If you go back to that famous 1999 World Cup semi-final between Australia and South Africa, I think I might've said this in a previous episode even, Damien Fleming talks about the fact that Australia and South Africa were choking. That's kind of what happens. Teams make a lot of mistakes and we remember the ones who make the mistakes last and end up out of the tournament. So it's not that choking isn't a part of this, and certainly the pressure and the entire system is a big part of it. But I think if you start with choking, you've already sort of ruined the idea of actually taking a good hard look at what is going on with the team. So You could say that they have problems against the best teams in the biggest games and therefore that is choking. Or you could actually have a look at all their games against all the different teams and start to see if there's a pattern. And we will get to that. The other thing is the IPL. The IPL is a random tournament for cricket because no one else really has anything like it. And what the IPL does is it means that very young Indian-based players are going to get paid a lot of money despite the fact that Perhaps some of them aren't that good. Shardul Thakur is a really interesting player because if you look at his first-class record. He looks like a sensation. And, you know, we've certainly seen him play very well in test cricket so far. But he gets paid an absolute fortune in the IPL. And he doesn't bat very often at all. In fact, last season might be the first year he really made any runs. And if you look at his economy, I think over the last few years, he's been by far the most expensive bowler. So do Indian players get overpaid? not for what the IPL is worth. In fact, I would say that considering how much money the IPL makes, the Indian players are perhaps the most underpaid of any of the cricketers out there. But does getting overpaid actually affect you only in knockout games? If it's affecting India, it should kind of be affecting them all the way through, right? And on top of that, like, there's no Indian cricketer that doesn't understand that if they want to make that next level of income, that, you know, Virat Kohli, Bumrah, and money, you really have to perform for India in the biggest games. So from that perspective, I just can't see how being overpaid really has anything to do with it. And the idea of overpaying players when they're young so they don't develop, I don't think we're seeing a lack of development with Indian players. So again, that doesn't make sense. And just to go back to what I said earlier, on a very basic level, if they're overpaid, they shouldn't be performing so well everywhere. The one thing I would say is there has been studies of this, I think in American sports, I'm not sure if they've done the same in football, but certainly in American sports, when you look at players' stats and their impact on games, just after they sign very, very big contracts, there is sometimes a regression, sometimes a massive one, sometimes a slight one. It can go the other way as well. It kind of makes sense if you're a young player and you spent your whole career trying to play at a certain level to get that money. When you get that money, you may not have that same hunger. Again, I'm not sure that is actually what is causing the problems here. And it's certainly not the overhyped youngsters who are getting overpaid and that not turning in the best performances. If you look at the last couple of World Cups, some of the senior players have had problems as well. So those are the two things I hear the most. And I just don't really think that either of them play a big part of it. What I want to look at really, and this is the thing that I have been most interested with. Uh, when looking at the Indian team over the last little while, is when you look at what they do, they always lean towards the conservative. Now, there will be older Indian people that will tell you that that is what India does as a country. They've always sort of looked towards that, maybe in a way that teams like Pakistan and Australia have not. I do get that, and I understand the principle of it. And (laughs) depending on how you look at conservatism, I'm not saying it's necessarily a wrong way of going about anything. But at the same time, when you do that, especially in a format like T20, you're kind of leaving something on the table in every single game. And I think that's what India do. And if you look, they pick conservative batters and conservative bowlers. And I think that's the really interesting thing here. If you look at Pakistan, Pakistan's a really interesting T20 team. They pick conservative batters and attacking bowlers. Now, Listen to Pakistani supporters. They're still not particularly happy with that style because they know that their batters are leaving runs out on the field all the time. They now have Shadab Khan, so arguably they have the ability to have a deeper batting lineup if they would like it. But they still like this idea of uh, making sure that you make you know anywhere between 145 and 175 regularly, and allow your bowlers to uh, turn that into what is more. I think it puts a lot of pressure on one side of your game. However. They've made the semi final and the final of the last two tournaments. They're the closest team to England that we've seen in the last two World Cups. So there is something in that, and it should also be pointed out that the conservative batters are very, very consistent, and their attacking bowlers very rarely fail, and they have multiple options and different kinds of bowlers and all these different things. If you look at England, they pick attacking both. Now, obviously, it's hard to compare anyone to England these days, but they certainly what England had a look at was originally, it was more of a team where they picked a lot of batters and then they picked anyone with a secondary batting skill to fill in their bowler. After a while, they sort of, I wouldn't say they went away from that, but they did realize that they had to continually take wickets. And so their bowlers do go for wickets. So we've seen that with Sam Curran in the last World Cup. We've seen that with Chris Wokes at times, but Liam Plunkett and Adol Rashid might be the biggest example of that. Of course, they're also attacking when they bat. The double conservative nature of India, not only does it look like a one-day theory from 10 or 15 years ago, it just doesn't really suit T20 cricket, I think, as much. And it feels like, to me, you'd almost need your batters to be on top form and your bowlers to be on top form in every game in order for you to win. The interesting thing about the England and the Pakistan methods is it's not quite as clear cut as that. I mean, if you look at Pakistan, the bowlers are going to you know, win you the majority of the games by taking wickets. But because the batters are getting those good par and just above par scores on a consistent basis, they're already in the game. So they have sort of two bites of the cherry there. And look at England. We know that if England's batting gets completely going, that they're going to have a huge score that it's going to be hard for any other team to be able to catch up with that's fine, and we get that. But they also have wicket-taking bowlers, which means that if a game does go slightly against the grain for them, and they can't quite get what they need out of it, they have the ability to take a lot of wickets. I'm not saying either of these teams are perfect, and we'd love to see England even as a full-strength side. We probably haven't seen that yet. And the Pakistan method, I think, can be debated. I just think we can't overlook the fact that when India are sort of doubling up on the safest possible method, they're almost ending up with a system that's not particularly safe. So let's go through the conservatism when you look at their side. So obviously, anchors is the most important one. Anchors is used for almost any player now that uh, someone doesn't like or has one slow innings. But the way it sort of came out of the T20 hipster community as much as anything else was pretty simple, that there were players who were trying to play their way through the majority of the innings and play usually catch up innings. You could say that Chris Gale is an anchor, and I think that would be fair. I have said that Joss Butler uh, plays a little bit like an anchor. I would say that David Warner is an anchor. So you do have faster scoring anchors as well. But those guys are still trying to make big runs. Totals. India seems to produce an incredible amount. In fact, I did some analysis on their players, and even I was surprised how many of their batters sort of fit into that sort of anchor role. And the story that I like to tell is about three different players. Rishabh Pant, Hardik Pandya, and KL Rahul. KL Rahul was probably always, at least, on the anchor spectrum, but he scored so quickly that it didn't always feel that way, a bit like maybe Josh Butler and, and David Warner. When he changed from RCB and went to the Kings, there's no doubt at that stage he had a worse batting lineup and he started making sure that he made more runs, and by that he started scoring a lot slower. When he went to India, they seemed to be saying the same thing also to him, and he followed that particular kind of method. Rishabh Pant was an absolutely outstanding player. It felt to me from the outside like he had maybe a year or two where things just didn't quite work the way that he would have liked them to. Some down years, I think that's fair. We see a lot of players who are very aggressive in test cricket, and we think that they will automatically transfer to ODI cricket. But there are differences. you know. The fielding changes uh, what you can do to the field when you're actually batting the kind of deliveries that are bold to you. So I don't think it's an automatic, but I thought it was a real shame when Delhi started using him as an anchor. And it was probably only this last year when he exploded into the belayer he should be, which is probably someone more like A.B. de Villiers or a slightly higher scoring version of Glenn Maxwell. So there's two. The one that I thought was maybe the most remarkable was Hardik Pandya. It could be, again, that he changed franchises. I went to a new franchise and was captain, and a bit like KOL, he suddenly felt to himself, well, I'm going to have to score more runs here and, and ensure that we have a solid middle order. It's also possible he was coming back from injury and he couldn't swing the way that he did. But I think it's a real interesting part of Indian T20 culture that so many of their players sort of end up pulling themselves back going away from hitting and scoring quickly. And look at the sort of players that the IPL are trying to get in from overseas. They're trying to get in the guys with the best strike rates. And yet, for their local players, that doesn't happen. And I really do think that the anchors is really important here. And if you look at India's side, they turned up at this World Cup with three anchors at the top of their order. All of those players, I would say, have the raw skills to be a lot more than just guys who can average around 30 with a strike rate of 135. All these players have the shots and the talent to be able to score at a rate that they don't need to play catch-up innings. And all of these players are well above normal level of talent. So there's a question why so many Indian players end up as anchors, and it's not something that I can answer particularly well. But I do think it's not the only country I've noticed this trend in. I would say that Australia has it at a certain degree as well there is something within Australia and India where they're still looking at these things as the total amount of runs you make. The cap color that is given out to the most runs in the IPL. It's not a big thing, but I do often look at it and think to myself, is that the right message? Is that the player that we should be celebrating? We see it with the wicket takers as well, which we'll get to in a moment. It's a really, really interesting thing. So, You've got your anchors. We know that they're slightly more defensive. We know that their job really is to average anywhere between 30 and 55, probably with a strike rate of, you know, 130 to 140. If you have one of those players and they're a high quality player and the pitch is playing up, I think that's great. I think if you have two, like for the Australian World Cup, where it was a bit more tricky, maybe you think to yourself, wow, it's fair enough. We'll give that a go. Three just seems like you are picking the players you think are the best and you're not really matching them that well. Let's go on to the bowlers for a minute. So the one thing that I've noticed is that India has been sort of rotating through R Ashwin, and Axar Patel. I don't think there's any argument here that those are not fantastic bowlers, and they're also really, really good. T20 bowlers in their own way, they can be slightly limited. And I suppose Jadeja and Aksha probably struggle to bowl four overs consistently in certain games. Ashwin's a little bit different just because you know he has maybe a wider array of skills. They all have batting talent as well. Jadeja and Aksha are fantastic fielders. Jadeja might be one of the best fielders in the world. These are not bad cricketers. The interesting thing about all that though, is that they are spoiler bowlers, and if you look at them, none of those three take a lot of wickets in the middle overs. India do produce bowlers who take wickets in the middle overs, Harshal Patel and, and Chahal, both of which were in the squad for the World Cup, neither of which played a game. Now, I understand the tricky nature of, of some of this because India is trying to balance out all-rounders and you know, extra batting talent and flexibility and all those sorts of things. But if your batters are going to be anchors and play catch-up innings, it means it sort of tops out what your level is. It should mean that you have a high floor and a low ceiling. If that's the case, is the best people to pair them up with guys who you know are not going to take wickets in that middle order? Is there a better way to use some of these bowlers so they do take wickets, perhaps in the power play? India seem to be besotted by using as much seam as possible in the power play and not even giving teams another look. Again... There's nothing wrong with that sort of spoiler bowler in T20 cricket. You kind of want your bowlers to have low economies. But I wonder if you want to match that with someone else who can take wickets. And it looks like from my perspective is that those are the three safest options and they go in with them. The problem is under high pressure, if the conservative anchors bat the way that they should and the spoiler bowlers bowl the way that they should, I wonder how many teams India can just beat at that very top level when everyone's fit and available and everyone's prepared for a World Cup. And I think that's the other thing I want to talk about. Those are conservative parts to the game. And I think many words have been written and me, angry uh, NDTV interviews have been said about some of those things already. But the other thing is that India is the most winning team. They absolutely dominated uh, T20 cricket internationally over the last few years. They've dominated most formats of cricket. In fact, there's no doubt that they have absolutely brilliant talent. But if you're going with a conservative option every time, are you not just allowing yourself for one good performance from the opposition to knock you out? Maybe one good bowling spell, maybe one good batting thing. You need so much of your players at form in the right time. And if you look at the two anchors we were talking about before, you would have to say that Rohit Sharma and KL Rahul were not in great form in this World Cup you go to the bowlers, you'd have to say the Bhuvie was not particularly at his best form. And I don't mean his numbers are bad, but look at the way they used him. He's got the third best numbers at the death and they basically didn't bowl him there. You've got Muhammad Shami, who is not a very good death bowler, that have ended up with death bowlers. So under this pressure, these sorts of things start to happen. And this is, I think, where it gets much more interesting when it comes to the fact that they do win so much in bilaterals and they don't win that much when the top level of pressure is on. And I think that's because there's no part of their game that can blow away one of the best teams. Now, occasionally, maybe if Boovy was at his best form and you had Boomer back in the side, you would have the opportunity maybe within your first three or four overs to get some wickets. But teams have worked out how not to get dismissed by Booby, which means that that sort of leaves it all to Ashdeep. And in this situation, Ashdeep couldn't be overbowled at the front because they needed him at the end. And so you have this situation where it makes sense what they're doing, and it's probably won a lot for them going in, and then it doesn't win at the major tournament. The other thing that I want to mention about all this is that they did change their style after the last World Cup. They did try and get more aggressive, specifically with the bat, and that was a big deal for them. Then they got to Australia, and the pitches were a little bit, I don't know if greener is the right way of putting it, but underprepared. They weren't quite what they expected to see. I don't think that's that surprising. It was early season. Uh, you know, looking back on it, it probably took us more by surprise. But thinking about it now, it makes a lot of sense. Bowlers were certainly more in the conditions in Australia than anyone expected. If you think about India, they turned up with sing bowlers and swing bowlers who like to move the ball around, so they would have been favoured by those conditions. They also turned up with three players who can also play in Test cricket in their top three, who should be able to handle that kind of bowling and go on to be quite handy for them in that situation. The game that really matters at the end is probably the England game because that's a knockout. But let's just go before then. If you look at the game against Pakistan, it's sort of a classic case of them underperforming all the way through the innings and then one player playing a catch-up innings, which looks like it gives them enough. And in this case, just got them over the line. If you look at the game against South Africa, again, they struggled to score, again, they weren't very slow, and this time their bowlers couldn't do any damage, especially through that middle period, uh, which is the tricky one when it comes to Indian bowlers. So those two games are interesting and are worth talking about. But the most important one is that when they played England, England thought to themselves, our best chance here is to essentially let India bat. That's not to say they weren't trying to get wickets. It's not to say that they weren't trying to nullify what India were doing and take it easy. But they sort of thought there was no score that India would be able to put on that would be beyond what England could score. That's a really, really interesting way of thinking about it. And it shows you that they have one absolute strength that they really believe in, in a way that it doesn't feel that way for India. That was the game when India needed to go back to that new style, the style that they sort of started using after the last World Cup or the previous World Cup, I should say. And they didn't. So they had a chance. And they went into it very, very robotic. I've been thinking about this a lot. We know that this is probably the most followed cricket team in the world. I would say it's the most followed sporting team in the world as well. I know maybe the Brazil football team beats it or there's some other team I'm not thinking about. But I would say that that is the case. The big difference between them and the Brazilian football team is outside of World Cups and maybe the Copa, perhaps and Olympics, I wonder how much pressure... Every time a Brazilian goes out to play in a friendly or qualifying tournament he's under compared to an Indian cricketer, because it feels to me that there is no game for Indian players to work on their skills. There's no time for them to get better. They have to be awesome, almost from the first ball they face in international cricket through to the last. And any slip ups, everything is on top of them. That's bad from an individual point of view. That's far worse than them being overpaid and some of them regressing that way. And the other thing that that sort of comes in with is that it doesn't allow the team to be as flexible as they need to be. Because I do think in T20 cricket, there needs to be almost an element of losing. And I know that sounds weird, but it's a shorter form tournament. We know that game format, sorry. We know that from the numbers, we just don't have these sorts of runs and wins that you get in Test cricket or ODI cricket. And that's because the sport is a little bit more random. It's almost the last sport on earth that you want everyone following your every move for. You know, you want it to be more like, I don't know, baseball or basketball, where two days after the game, you've already played again, and no one really remembers how bad you were and things move on. And the World Cup's almost the opposite of that. But it's also all the other games that they play. And I do think that there is an element of fear amongst, I was going to say the Indian players, but not just the Indian players, but the entire Indian cricket culture of not wanting to let down this incredible supporter base. And it does, I think, lean towards the anchors being picked and the spoiler bowlers rather than the aggressive bowlers. And that sort of safety first thing does seem to come in. And this is where I think it's really interesting from a strategic point of view. I said at the start that I picked India to have a look at them as a team over South Africa and West Indies, because in some ways, everything that they can do is more available to them. And they're more likely to make those changes than South Africa or West Indies are, but the other side of that is india are such a winning team they so rarely lose outside of one or two knockout games at tournaments or you know i suppose in 2021 they didn't even make that but they so rarely lose the hardest thing in sport is really tearing down a culture that isn't losing it's just losing at the wrong time it's easy for the west indies right now to almost go back to square one go okay let's get a new coach let's get a new captain Let's look at the kind of players we are doing. Let's not even worry about the next World Cup. Let's worry about the World Cup after or anything like that. India doesn't have any of that available to them. And so they're going to be tearing down from a position where they're actually already good. So chances are, if they do a tear down, they'll actually lose a lot more. Is that something that is even possible within Indian cricket? There's such high hopes. There's such constant sort of confidence and arrogance and... There's the analysis, there's the analysis on your partner, there's the analysis on your body language and everything else that you have to deal with as an Indian cricketer, that if anyone comes in and tries to tear down this team and start again, I wonder if that is even something that is easy to do at this point. The truth is though, that the talent is completely there. And I find it not baffling, but good young Indian players, so many people seem to have bad thoughts about them. And I wonder if the big difference between now, and there's so many differences between where Indian cricket is now and where it was. So if you think about it before, let's say 2007, they weren't one of the best teams in the world consistently. The fan base just wanted them to play good. It liked that it had some of the best players in the world, but it also liked cricket. Those things have changed a little bit. You know, So many people now in India grew up in you know, 2007, 2011, 2013, that era, they demand greatness from their team. And I do think that there is the talent there. But every time, it doesn't matter. I mean, I had messages during this World Cup from people saying, should Sky continue to play the way he is? He's got the most runs in T20 internationals in 2022 at a strike rate that doesn't even make sense. But those are the questions. Rishabh Pant, from the moment Rishabh Pant existed, uh, we've had those questions. You see people completely slagging off Dinesh Kartik's bad tournament based on the fact that he played three games, batted it out of position in one Went in for the last over to face spin, which wasn't his role in another. And in the third one, he got run out. But there's no space for context or facts in this anymore. And that's one of the big problems. So the talent is there, but I do wonder if the talent can be fully unleashed and what sort of a captain or a coach or, you know, even, you know, general manager or whatever could actually unleash India as best it is. But in the video series, you'll see that I've done a lot of different. That's the best way of putting it. Alternate 11s, I suppose, to show just how much talent they have and also how much flexibility they could have. They're playing such a dogmatic style and they could be doing almost anything uh, with bat and ball. But realistically, I don't think the situation is that much different for the coaches, the captains, the selectors, and the players. I just think that for whatever reason, specifically within white ball cricket, there seems to be a huge fear of failure for Indian cricket at the moment. And it is a different world. That's not to say that Sachin Tendulkar and Sanol and, you know, Vinu Mankad and, you know, Mohammad Nissar and all these heroes from the past. It's not that those players didn't have to deal with the pressure. And in some ways it was at that stage, Indian cricket was the thing that sort of, you know, Indians turned to. And it's not in that sort of way anymore. But social media and media channels and 24-hour news cycles and all these sorts of things do change this. And perhaps it is just the old school conservative nature of Indian cricket, or perhaps it's what I think it is, which is this fear of failure of the best thing to do is to put out the safest team and eventually it will come off. And this is the thing about the T20 World Cup specifically. It's almost dumb luck that they haven't won one since 2007, because they've certainly had the team that's been good enough to win before. You can argue that they haven't always selected it. They haven't always used it correctly. They haven't always developed it. They haven't got the experience of some of the other T20 players because they don't play in outside leagues, all those sorts of things. But at a certain point, if you look down at a piece of paper, it's a bit like Australia. Eventually, you just expect them to win one. The truth, though, is that I don't think India just want to win one. I think what Indian fans really want is this sort of supremacy that we've seen from you know, the great West Indian sides and the great Australian sides. And I think the way that India are playing in white ball cricket at the moment, I don't think the talent is the problem. But I do think there is something there about that mindset. And the weirdest thing is that it really feels like it's that fear of failure that matters the most when they get to the World Cups. And there they just get the failure part of it. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. Also, support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapiya and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Cricket.